Good morning. You know, Juliet is believed to be the last blue and yellow macaw living in the wild in Rio de Janeiro. In fact, the last time a blue and yellow macaw was seen flying through the air in Rio was in 1818. So it's very likely that Juliet is the last of her kind. Now imagine that. Imagine being the last of your kind on earth. How would you handle that? How would you cope? Well, Juliet has a rather sad way of coping. For the last 20 years, she has flown to the macaw enclosure at Rio de Janeiro Zoo. She lands on the cage and through the, the wiring, she engages in grooming activities with the other macaws. Sometimes she just sits there and enjoys their presence. Blue and yellow macaws are said to live to be like 35 years of age. So by now, she should have had a lifelong mate and had chicks, but that's passed her by. And so she spends her days communicating through a cage because macaws are social beings. They're meant to live in community. And yet, she lives alone. You know, it's unfortunate that so many individuals this time of year are experiencing, I should say, a bitter holiday. Elvis saying, I'll have a blue Christmas without you. And for some this year, their Christmas is going to be bluer than blue. I'm thinking of another song. I heard it on the radio the other day. 1974, the band America had a song. This is for all the lonely people. Well, this sermon this morning is for all the lonely people. And actually, it's for all of us because all of us either directly or indirectly deal with loneliness. You may be dealing with it right now, or you may be trying to help someone deal with it. Loneliness is the first negative that we read about in the Garden of Eden. Everything up to that point had been good, but in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we read these words. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, of course, man wasn't alone. Man had uh, God with him in the garden, but God recognized that that wasn't really enough. It's kind of like the little girl who was afraid to sleep in her own bed, and so she went to her mom and said, Mom, can I sleep with you? And mom said, No, you need to learn to sleep in your own bed. And she said, But it's scary. And, and, and mom says, Yeah, but there, God's in the room with you. You're going to be okay. And she goes, Yeah, but I need somebody with skin. And that's exactly what we need, right? We need somebody with skin. And God understood that. God doesn't take offense at that. God knew that while he was present in the garden with man, that man needed someone with skin. He needed someone like him, someone that could be with him and share life with him. And that's what we need as well. We all need someone with skin. Mary and Martha got both, didn't they? They got God with skin on it. And if you look at John chapter 11, you find two words that are often just the answer to a trivia question. Verse 35, Jesus wept. That's really how we know that verse. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Of course, if you go back to the original language, Jesus wept isn't the shortest, but it's the shortest to us. But think about the magnitude of those words. Think about what those words mean. Jesus wept. Two words that contain so much power. Jesus cried. In verse 33, it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Jesus felt the need to be human over the death 
of his dear friend Lazarus. You know, as a minister, I used to struggle with this. I always thought that I was supposed to be above the fray. I felt like that as a minister, it was my duty to kind of be somewhat removed from the situation so that I could be in control, right? When everybody else is sobbing and weeping, somebody has to be in control, and I felt like I needed to be the rock. But I've since learned that people don't need a rock. People need a pillow. They need someone that they can rest their head on that person's shoulder, someone who has a mouth to speak words of comfort, someone who has eyes to cry with them, someone to lift them up and encourage them. In verse 21 of John 11, it reads, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you skip down to verse 32, it reads, So when Mary came to the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It seems as though Mary and Martha are rebuking Jesus for not being there in their time of desperation. But I want you to notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't scold Martha. He doesn't get all theological on her. He simply responds by saying that he would raise Lazarus. You see that throughout this episode, Jesus doesn't play the role of life coach. He doesn't try to, uh, you know, turn to pithy sayings like uh, time will heal all wounds or, you know, just trust in God, let go and let God, you know, we, we often do that in grief, right? In moments of grief, we try to intellectualize it, we try to, to be theological, we try to give the perfect answer, and in our speaking, we oftentimes make things worse. Sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. And I think Jesus provides us with a wonderful example of this. Sometimes it's best just to be quiet. Just be still. You know, when Job's three friends came to him, do you remember what they did at first? Right at first, they sat with him for seven days. Didn't open their mouths. They just sat with him. It's the best thing you could do. And then they messed it all up when they opened their mouth, right? So many times that's what happens with us. It's fine when we're sitting with the person, but then when we try to play life coach, we get ourselves in trouble. I want you to notice verse 31. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and were consoling her When they saw that Mary had gotten up quickly and left, they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So the Jews had come to Mary and Martha's house to console them. This was no gentle sobbing. This would have been bitter wailing because in this culture, the Jews felt like the the more wailing, the more bitter the shrieking, the more honor it brought to the deceased. Sounds a little weird, but that was the culture of the time. So this unrestrained wailing and shrieking was going on and imagine that you are arriving in the village and you hear this and you walk up on the scene this community of people grieving with these two sisters that had lost their dear brother everyone was overcome with emotion tears flooded the ground there was a community that had come together for the sole purpose of lifting these women up the loss of Lazarus didn't mean as much to the crowd but still they were there for their friends And this was an essential part of the Jewish religion. Grieving with those who were grieving was an essential part of the Jewish religion, even more essential than any good work. Of course, we don't need a book of traditions like the Talmud to tell us that we need to be there to encourage those that are grieving. We understand that that's a part of being the church because the church is to be a community of bereavers. That's what we are to be. We are to be lifter-uppers. We come out of love and concern not out of duty or obligation. 
I want to jump over to John chapter 12. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse 2 says, So they made him a dinner there, and Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So Jesus visits the home of Mary and Martha again. Why? Well, to check on them. Because that's what you do. The grieving doesn't stop at the funeral, folks. I think that's how we often think in our culture. Well, the funeral's over, time to move on. But it's the days and the weeks and the months and the years after the funeral. People still ache. They still hurt. Time doesn't heal all wounds. That's a myth. Might make it easier to process the grief. And in fact, it should at some point. But you're always grieving the loss of someone you were close to. You know what the best tool for a bereaver is? A calendar. If we kept a calendar... And on the day that one of our loved ones lost a loved one, we marked that day. And then every time that date rolled around, we called him up and we said, hey, do you need anything? I'm praying for you. Would you like to, to go out to eat? Following up and making sure that we're still taking care of them long after the funeral is over. Understand that John's gospel was written for a Greek audience. And this snapshot of Jesus found in chapter 11, would have turned their world upside down. The Greeks believed that God was distant, that he had nothing to do with his creation once he created it, especially his people, because the Greeks knew that people were emotional creatures, that people feel anger, they experience emotions like sadness and loneliness and things of that nature. And so if a person is feeling those emotions, it means that someone or something has control over them. Well, God can't have anybody that's controlling him, so therefore he never experiences those motions with people, so therefore he's distant, he, he's aloof. But this picture, this portrait in John chapter 11 shows that that's not the case. It would have turned their thinking on its head. The entire episode, Jesus is painting a picture of a very different God than they were used to, one whose heart is overcome with the anguish of people, a God with skin on him. One of the greatest things that Jesus did was bring the news of a God who cares. And not only that, he established a community of bereavers that we know as the church. This community helps us cope with grief. Not only are we able to tap into the power of God in times of distress, we're able to tap into the power of community. We can rely on our spiritual family. I love the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. God, in his infinite foreknowledge, knew that people need other people. The church functions, or at least it should, to comfort and support one another in both the triumphs and also the trials of life. One of my favorite movies during the holiday season is Home Alone. If you haven't seen Home Alone, I'm about to ruin it for you. So Home Alone is about uh, an eight-year-old boy by the name of Kevin McAllister. Kevin lives in a, a large home with a wealthy family in Chicago, and Kevin is a kind of a modern-day Dennis the Menace, cute kid, spoiled brat, and the family, his family, is having all of their extended family descend on their home for the holidays. They're spending the night, and the next morning, the whole family, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, they're all going to Europe on vacation. 
And so the family descends and there's all this chaos and Kevin is not happy about it one bit. He wants his own space. He wants to, to have, you know, life like it's always been. He doesn't like all the commotion, doesn't like what it's doing to disrupt his life. And so he acts out. He tells his mother he hates her and he wishes he could live alone. And she sends him to sleep in the attic. And the next morning, the family gets everything gathered up and, and there's chaos and there's hustle and bustle and they get on the plane and they're flying to Europe and they realize we don't have Kevin with us. And Kevin wakes up to his wish being a reality. He is home alone, which means that he can eat whatever he wants, he can watch whatever he wants, he can do whatever he wants. Now, during the course of the movie, there's a couple of bumbling idiots by the name of Harry and Marv that try to break into his house and those antics are pretty funny as he sets booby traps and all kinds of things to stave off their, their attack, intrusion. But eventually, the family turns around and heads back home to recover Kevin. And in that time, Kevin realizes that not only is he alone, he's lonely. And the wish didn't match the reality. And that's often the case with the birth of Jesus. You know, we talked about this a little last week. The birth of Jesus is often overtaken by flying reindeer and jolly old St. Nick. Joy and peace are Christmas buzzwords. You have gifts, you have trees, you have lights, and you have ornaments. All that takes center stage. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? But when we read of Jesus' birth in Scripture, we find a very different mood. We read about a ruthless king. We read about terrified parents, and we read about dead babies. It was the bluest of times, but that's what makes this story so incredible. The fact that Jesus chose to make his entrance into a world that was experiencing so much unrest, so much turmoil. It's actually very fitting when you think about it, that the birth of Jesus would be the answer to our grief. Death, disease, sin, evil, darkness were front and center the day that Jesus arrived. But that's why he came. To dispel of those enemies, to dispel of the darkness, to deal with our grief. That's why his coming was necessary. The incarnation happened to deal with grief. All hope was wrapped up in a swaddling baby in a manger. God entrusted a young couple in a troubled world with his biggest gift, his plan, his mission, himself, his son. In Jesus, we have the answer to everything that causes our grief. Remember the words of the angel. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So all I'm trying to do is get us to to think bigger than flying reindeer or, or a waving Santa. I want us to think bigger than peace on earth, goodwill towards men. All that's good. I'm not diminishing that. But I want us to think bigger. I don't want to be that, uh, that old guy that shakes his fist at the cloud, get off my lawn. I don't want to be that guy when it comes to Christmas. But I do want us to take the spiritual from the secular and really immerse the secular with the spiritual. I want us to see the bigger picture here. And I don't want us to throw out the baby with the manger. The Grinch isn't the only one that tried to steal Christmas. The world has been pretty successful in its own right. So let's not let the secular rob the spiritual. And let's do our best not to let the holiday blues block out the hope that's on the horizon. And again, I'm not trying to diminish anything anyone is going through. Many of you are dealing with grief this time of year. And it's even harder when it comes this time of year. The holidays are anything but cheery for some. I know that's difficult. 
But I don't want us to forget in the midst of the darkness. Because Jesus coming to this earth means that our grief-filled, lonely holidays can be filled with life and expectation. Many years ago, there was a town in Maine, a little town, that learned that they were going to lose their city. There was a new hydroelectric plant coming in, and they were going to dam up a river north of town, and thus they were going to flood the city. And the residents were given ample time to leave, to pack up all their stuff and relocate. But what was interesting is during that time, operations ceased. You know, the garbage men weren't real diligent about picking up the trash. Maintenance on the roads and, and infrastructure stopped. You know, day-to-day activities slowed down. People gave up hope. I mean, why try? If you're going to lose your city anyway, why go about doing all the things that you've done before? One citizen said it this way, where there is no faith in the future, there's no power in the present. The town was covered in a cloud of hopelessness because they had no future. And the lonely often live under that same cloud. Grief and sorrow are all too common byproducts of living in a fallen world. But, but underneath the cloud, there's hope. Notice the announcement to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Do you know who we are? you have any idea who we are? We are the Emmanuel, God with us. You know, we often point to Jesus as Emmanuel, rightfully so, God with us. We are the Emmanuel. God is with us. We face a formidable foe. Do you know who it is? You can say Satan, yes. But sin, death, that's the final enemy. Death is the final enemy. And sin and death are enemies that are more powerful than us. We are no match for them on our own. But do you know who is? Obvious answer is, of course, God, Jesus. And do you know who Jesus is? He's Emmanuel. God with us, the one who saves us from sin and death. You see, the enemy was doomed from the beginning. It wasn't even a fair fight. That was the message God delivered to his people through the prophet Isaiah some 700 years prior to Jesus' birth. That's the message that God delivers to us through Jesus. God fights for his people. The fact that God is with us makes it an unfair fight. Victory is assured and it calms all of our fears. It gives us hope under that dark cloud. You go back to the Messianic prophet, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. To who? Well, to us. To Israel. But although those living in Isaiah's time would not see this come to fruition, there was hope for them, there's hope for us. The us is definitely you and me as well. For a child has been given to us, but not just any child. This child is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And you know, no king would be worth his salt if he didn't do his utmost to protect his citizens, right? How do you judge the effectiveness of the king? How do you judge the quality of a king? How do you determine if he's a good king? If he brings peace and prosperity to the kingdom he's ruling over. That's it. If a king can't protect his citizens, 
Well, he's no good. That's his number one job. King's got to protect his citizens. So the king's reputation is on the line. Everything hinges on his ability to bring peace and prosperity, to be able to protect the citizens. Our king's reputation is on the line, but we know he's good for it because we know that our king is the most powerful king. He is the king of kings, and so we know that he will rise victorious. He's already claimed victory. He's already assured us that we are victorious. He has protected the loyal citizens and will continue to do so. A king's reputation hinges on whether he can bring peace and prosperity to those he rules over. And certainly ours does that. The promised Messiah was to be the means by which God, the king, would bring us peace and prosperity. And you say, well, Chris, where is it? (laughs) I mean, I sure don't see that. After the last year and a half we've had, where's the peace and prosperity? You look around the world, where's the peace and prosperity? Well, we've talked about this before, but we're living in that gap, right? Talked about this a few weeks ago. We're living in the gap between now and not yet. We're living in that gap between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise. And living in the gap is hard. It's tough. And like we said a few weeks ago, it is common. And I've seen this over and over again in my ministry. It is common when people are dealing with grief to pull back, to turn away from God, from Jesus, the church. And when you pull away, you widen the gap. You lengthen the gap. So as difficult as it is, the only real option is to draw near. Life is tough in the gap. Nobody questions that. Sometimes your kids say, life isn't fair. Whoever said life was going to be fair? Jesus certainly didn't. In fact, Jesus said, if you follow me, life's going to be very unfair. So just get used to that. However, there's a promise of something better. This isn't as good as it gets, right? Life in the gap is tough, but it's not permanent. Our king's reputation is on the line, but he pulls through. He brings peace to the land through a prince, a prince who will destroy the enemies who continue to rebel against God's rule and reign. Who are the enemies that will be destroyed? Well, Scripture tells us the enemies are the devil and his angels, those who do not obey the gospel, death. Those are the enemies that he points out in Scripture that will be destroyed. For us, a child is born. God has given you and me a gift. And it's a gift of rescue, a gift of hope, a gift of peace. A day is coming when there will be no more enemies. And thus, no more grief, no more sorrow, no more hopelessness. And so my encouragement to you is don't lengthen the gap. Don't widen the gap. Instead of pulling away, draw near. Because turning away would be more catastrophic than anything you would experience going forward. A father had lost his wife to cancer and forced to raise his little six-year-old boy on his own. And after the funeral, they returned to their home and as the father and son walked through the door, they realized the gravity of the situation. Mom's not coming back. It's just the two of them from then on. So night came and the father tucks the little boy into bed and says his prayers with him, gives him a kiss on the head and retires to his own room. 
As he's laying there, he can't sleep, and he hears a knock at the door. He knows exactly who it is. Daddy, can I come in? He says, sure, son. So his son comes in, gets in bed with him, and the two of them lay there, tossing and turning. They can't go to sleep. So much anxiety, so much grief, so much sorrow, and the loss of his wife and the child's mother. Finally, the little boy turns over to his dad, and he says, Daddy, are you looking at me? Because if you're looking at me, I think I could go to sleep. And the dad says, sure, son, I'm, I'm looking at you. Go to sleep. The boy eventually drifts off to sleep, and the dad gets out of bed, and he walks over to the window, and he pulls back the curtains, and he looks up at the stars in the sky. He says, Father, are you looking at me? Because if you are, I think I could go to sleep. It's a lot of us having some, some sleepless nights. Having some difficulty going to sleep. But hopefully, hopefully we can, we can take solace in the fact that, that our Father is watching us. That we're not grieving alone. And we have the Father on our side, but we have a community of bereavers on our side as well that are there to help us to cope with the grief, to deal with life in the gap, and to get out from under this cloud. You know, dealing with loss and loneliness isn't easy, and I'm not trying to sell you on that this morning. But I do hope that we can find, that we can find some comfort in one another and in the Father that is looking down on us. I hope that helps you to sleep at least some. I'm so thankful for this family, and if, if we can encourage you, if you need the prayers of this church family, if you need love, support from this church family, you don't have to come forward. You can tell us during this week. We can pray with you, pray for you. If you're ready to study the Bible with someone, let us know. We just offer this invitation. If you're ready to take that next step in faith, then do that this morning. Live with hope and come as we stand and as we sing.